a painter, uh, Archie Rand, a very well-known uh, Jewish painter. And I would ask him, you know, how, how do you get the idea to, to do this painting? And he said, I don't. He said, it comes somehow from up there and I'm just, you know, it's just going through me. That was from my conversation exploring the walk of life with author Ronnie Kessler. After raising his family and retiring from his career as a CPA, Ronnie was inspired to start writing. Ronnie shares about how his children and grandchildren gave him the idea for a trilogy of young adult novels that weave together an exciting story with both cultural history and personal stories of Ronnie's family history. Ronnie has published all three books in the last two years and is a tremendous example that we can all develop and pursue new passions in the midst of an already robust life. I really enjoyed my conversation with Ronnie and I'm excited to share it with you. As always, thank you so much to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Ronnie Kessler, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, really excited to have you here. So, Ronnie, you are a an author, uh, and so far you have three books published. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. That's correct. Um, I, uh, I started uh, quite late in life, so uh, uh, the books all came out in the last couple of years. Yeah, which is remarkable. I, I've, I've, I've talked to, I don't exclusively interview authors, but I've interviewed several authors at this point, and, and it, it's interesting to see the range of, of how long it takes. Some people start on something, and then it's a decade before they really sit and really work, on, work it out, and then there's folks like yourself who, I mean, three books in a year is pretty remarkable. That's a pretty three good years, case. Three years. I don't want to, I don't sure. want to overstate it. <laughs> and, and I, I actually prepared to show it to you. I know, I know you're listening, your listeners can see it, but this is a napkin. Can you see it? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, I started writing, uh, the, the mysterious animal soup 20 years ago. Wow. On that napkin. Uh, wow. I was I was waiting for someone. Um in my past life I'm a CPA. Okay. And uh, I was sitting there waiting for a client I guess who was late. And I started scribbling just these ideas that I had. And uh then it sort of just sat in some file someplace where I have other ideas and my son asked me uh to write about my own history. I was born in Israel. Mm. And actually, I was born in Palestine. Oh, wow. Which then became Israel because right. I'm now 79 and Israel is not that old. So <laughs> so he wanted to know the history and, and so on. So I started writing that. And uh, in writing that, um, I went through some some papers uh, to, you know, to get some insights into some things that happened. And I came across the napkin. Mm. <laughs> so I said, what is that? Why am I keeping a napkin? And I read it. And um, next what happened was um, we went to Florida for the winter and the pandemic hit. And uh, I started writing both books. You know the old the my my uh, the book that my son wanted me to write about my bio, biography, mm -hmm. and this book, and then I got into the book, and I and since then I haven't done anything on my biography. I've just been writing the book. <laughs> and what's interesting is because I was talking, uh, I don't know if you know Stephanie from Red Penguin Books, yeah, uh, my publisher, but I was talking to her the other day. She interviewed me, and I said that. My style of writing is that the as I write, the story comes to me. It's not like I have the story before uh, mm. and, and then I just put it down. Uh, I have some, some rough ideas. And uh, so that's what happened. I was just every day, I just, I was disciplined. I wrote a few hours. Yeah. And uh, when I sent it to Stephanie, uh, she asked me to... Um, if I would commit to three books. 
Mm. And in which case she would take care of everything. And I said, sure, you know, like it, it gives me a goal, you know, something to do. Yeah. And um, so then she asked me to write the novella. And the novella, uh, I, I wrote it as a prequel to The Mysterious Animal Soup, The Professor and the Wild Dogs, which I noticed today on Amazon uh, hit number 10. I was shocked. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Really and uh, and so um, that that came out first, and she offered that for free if people sign up on her uh, website. And then the book came out. Uh, I, I don't think it uh, created any new... Uh, uh, records in terms of sales <laughs> i think my family is the one that that uh did most of the buying but uh uh stephanie said usually it's the third book that mm. really creates you know the the interest because uh especially with children's books uh and teen books they're interested in in a series not just one standalone book sure and uh, as I wrote it, I really was thinking about my uh, grandchildren. I have uh, mm. 12 grandchildren now. Wow, that's awesome. With my wife. And um, um, a bunch of them are tweens. The, the first, from the first 10 grandchildren, nine were girls and one was boy. So, okay. <laughs> so sort of like Rachel, uh, you know, was, uh, I was thinking about the, the granddaughters. And also, um, I was thinking about my history, I guess, because I was writing the biography mm-hmm. um, in, into the Mysterious Animal Soup came a lot of this biography. Uh, so, mm. for example, uh, my, my mom was born in Austria. My dad uh, grew up there. And uh, at some point, I guess maybe it was 1935, I don't know if you or your listeners know about the Maccabiah Games, which are they are the Jewish Olympics. Okay. And uh, my dad played field hockey for a Jewish team in Austria, in Vienna. And so that team went to Palestine to play in the Jewish uh, uh, equivalent of the Olympics. And... Uh, and then most of the team defected because at that time the British did not allow, uh, you know, Jewish people to just come in. Oh, wow. So, so most of the team defected and he had corresponded with my mom. Uh, and uh, so he wanted her uh, to come and marry him. But of course, she wasn't allowed. The British didn't allow it. Right. Her sister was going out with a Palestinian boy. Uh, who was born in Palestine, and he was allowed to marry a girl and bring her in. So he married my mother, brought her to uh, Palestine, divorced her, she married my dad, and then he went back and got uh, her sister and married her. So that whole story is in the book. Oh, wow. Because I felt that, you know, it's kids don't know about what happened they don't know about the holocaust they don't know about a lot of these things and so maybe that will give them some curiosity um and the rest of the book also sort of in my in my mind carries uh, a message uh which is the dangers of messing around with dna mm. and and uh you know that whole area of cloning and uh trying to you know, uh, uh, create, you know, animals or different animals and so on. So the idea of trying to insert the abilities of animals into humans was sort of the theme of the book. Gotcha. Well, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of directions to go and I don't know that it'll be in a sequential order that makes any sense, but I'll just, I'll just start going here. But so, and this is the, this is probably the weirdest question because this was not the emphasis of what you just said at all. But I just interviewed another author recently who was also a CPA for most of his life, and then he was a bit younger than you, but but uh, certainly at least middle aged before he started writing. Is there anything in accounting that that translates to writing? Because they would seem like completely separate things, but now here it is. I've talked to two different accountants that are. Yeah. Prolific writers. <laughs> well, I, I would say uh, 
I mean, I would say yes and no. And 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 here's what I mean. So um, in uh, in the business of accounting, you really have different fields. So that you have people that strictly do auditing, uh, which means you know looking into the books of corporations and 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 so on. And you have uh, people that specialize in taxation, where they do tax returns and things of that nature. And then there are people that uh, concentrate more on administration. And uh, I uh, I was always prone to the administrative side. So I was always the um, administrative partner, the managing partner of the firm I was working in. In that um, uh, capacity, I always wrote a newsletter. And so I always liked writing. I see. Um, I also liked writing poetry and, and essays and things like that. So that I think that the writing was always there, but but needing to be in a profession where I can support my family was also there. But if you ask me which one I liked better, I liked the writing better. Yeah. So, so I think that um, it's not that CPAs and writing go together. It's I think a lot of people get into the profession because that is the thing that you are driven to in order to be, you know, a good provider for your family. And and I'll I'll tell you a little, little side note which is very interesting. I mentioned my son before who you know wanted me to write. Well, my son Jason. Uh, went to law school, uh, Columbia Law School. He did fantastic. Oh, wow. He was he was uh, hired by one of the top law firms, um, and uh, and then went to another law firm because he wanted to be in entertainment uh, law. And eventually, after being in law for a bunch of years, decided he really doesn't like it that much, and he's now a screenwriter. Oh wow! <laughs> so he lives in LA. And he's a screenwriter. He wrote a couple of movies. Um, and so, you know, I think that a lot of people have uh, the art uh, along with maybe talent or maybe no talent, but they have it in there. Um, another example I can give you is my best friend is a doctor. Uh, he also plays the saxophone. Uh, he right. now got a gig where he's actually playing and he's, he's actually getting some money nothing compared to being a doctor but if he had a choice he would rather just be a saxophone player you know than be a doctor so i i think that that's um you know it's just another piece of the brain right that uh you you might identify with that because you're now an artist as well now were you always an artist <laughs> no certainly not <laughs> so you know what i'm saying so i think um, when when you have the fortune of uh, not having to work, uh, because I retired pretty young, uh, you have the choices, and then then you can you can do that. And I think that's what you're finding. Now I don't know about the other gentleman, but you know he might have been doing writing uh, as a CPA as well. Sure, sure, yeah. Well, that was the first time I'd ever heard it, so I didn't really ask him what he thought the connection there was. Cause I was just like, Oh, well, you know, lots of people do other things, I guess. But, but then just for two days in a row to talk to two CPAs that then transitioned into writing. And it's not like you just wrote, you know, <laughs> it's not like you just wrote what's on the napkin. You've got yeah. multiple novels, which is, which is a lot. So it's just pretty remarkable. So, you know, you talked about writing as the CPA and, and that you always enjoyed that work. Did you, did you find yourself, engaged in writing as as a child like in school was that something you were driven towards or is that as an adult um, no i don't think i mean of course i i grew up in israel mm -hmm. and uh, so my first 15 years were in israel and uh, no i really don't remember having any propensity to arts um i was more sports oriented i didn't mm. like school especially i wasn't doing very well uh, what, what's really, uh, I think, ironic is we had to take uh, uh, languages. So, of course, I had to take Hebrew and grammar and, and, uh, and uh, writing, and I had to take Arabic, and I had to take English. 
And in high school, uh, I was failing all three subjects. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think if, if there wasn't spell check on the computers, you know, <laughs> I would be in big trouble. Hey, I'm right there with you. It's it's a it's amazing. And I, I mean, I can spell OK, but at the end of the day, that's my crutch. Right. And it's crazy yeah. how much we have come to rely on so much of technology, not just spell check, certainly. But but that's a great example of something that's just so commonplace now that you don't even really think about it. And if you are doing something on a computer and for some reason it doesn't have spell check, it, it feels it's like, what is this? How does it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something else interesting. So uh, every now and then I have the occasion to write in Hebrew, which, of course, is the language of Israel. Mm -hmm. Well, my writing skills and my reading skills are not only are the, the skills of a 15 year old, but in all these years, you know, they've they've sort of uh, gone away. So um, what happens is I can dictate in Hebrew and it will come out perfectly. Oh, but because I can speak it, but I can't write it as right as well. So the computers are really amazing. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So and I've tried to ask this question of other people, and I, I don't know how much sense it makes, really, but it, it's something that's always been curious to me. I only speak English. I don't, I'm not bilingual in any capacity. But I'm curious if you have the ability to speak another language fluently or two languages fluently like that. Do you feel like that that um, provides, I'm trying to think of how to say it, like, more opportunities for you to think of different ways to position things. And the, I, what I mean by that is like, you know, so for example, in high school, I took Spanish briefly. And in Spanish, it's the opposite of English. Like in English, we would say the dog is brown. And in Spanish, they would say like the brown dog or, you know, it's, it's something, something along those lines. But it's it's just they put they put descriptors ahead of the thing is, or instead of behind it kind of deal. So it, it's the same words and it's ultimately the same ideas that are conveyed, but they're conveyed in a different order in the sentences, which, you know, if you're native to that language, doesn't matter. Does this make sense what I'm saying at all? Absolutely. And not only does it make sense, but it's a problem that I have in writing uh, as well. Because mm. in Hebrew, I think that uh, the subject sometimes comes in a different place than in English. Yeah. That and I find that when I reread my writing, many times I have to change the sentence structure. Huh. Um, but beyond that, because I'm writing, I guess this is happening, but beyond that, I think what happens is, I mean, I actually speak three languages. I speak German, Hebrew, and English. Oh, wow. And so sometimes, you know, you're mixing up the words. You want to say something and you're, you know, or... I want to I want to say something and I can't think of the word in English but I can think of the word in Hebrew. Yeah. Or, or German. So uh there is a plus and a minus. Uh the plus is that you can converse with different people, you know, it's nice. Um Yeah. You know, uh I play tennis so on a tennis court when I play with another Israeli, we can talk with the other people not knowing what we're saying. That's nice. Yeah. But beyond that, um, my German came in handy. I was um, I was in the army um, in the 60s, and I was stationed in Germany. Oh, okay. So not only did it uh, help me to know German, but my German became a lot better. Right. Because I was talking uh, German to the locals. Yeah. So I think the advantages, but there are disadvantages. And I think as I get older, I find that that, phenomenal of of knowing the word and and not being able to say it because it's coming in another language happens uh more and more to me and also i've become my memory has has definitely uh deteriorated in the mm. sense that i can't i can't get words sometimes that i want yeah. Even in my writing, sometimes I have to put a line and say, I'll get to that later because you don't want to stop, you know, right. I'll get to that later and I'll find the word. But uh, there are a lot of words now that um, I have a hard time finding. Hmm. Well, and also, again, I'm not not a not bilingual or anything, but my understanding is that there are some examples where there's a word in a, in a language that just doesn't have a direct 
parallel in the other language. I mean, yeah. you could use multiple words to describe it, but there's not maybe a singular word that describes true. that same idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. Uh, and the opposite is true as well. Right. So you might have one word in Hebrew, which requires several words in English. Right. So, you know, it, it goes both ways. Yeah, but you're absolutely right. That, that is definitely uh, a phenomenon of, of the different languages. Yeah, yeah. I just, I think, I think it's really fascinating. I just, I live in Springfield, Missouri, which is the anywhere USA. And uh, there's, there's just not anyone here that speaks other languages largely. You know what I mean? I'm not around people that do. So there's, I, I can take a course or something, but there's no real world application for me to apply it and to really practice it and just converse with it, you know? Don't, don't feel bad because uh, <laughs> my wife uh, speaks Spanish. Uh, she was she was born in Puerto Rico. Okay. And her mother is living with us. God bless her. She's ninety nine years old. Oh wow, that's so cool. And they're constantly talking Spanish to each other. And and if 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 I know ten words, it's a lot. <laughs> so you you have the experience of the tennis players in your own home with your exactly. wife and mother in law. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, you know sometimes I hear them talk and I don't understand what they're saying. Ronnie. <laughs> so I know, I know I must be the topic. Right, right. That's funny. I say, what did I do now? <laughs> so you mentioned earlier when you're writing that you know you don't have. It's not like you have the outline of the story in your head ahead of time, and that kind of develops through the writing. So do you? Have, is it the characters that you're starting with, or kind of what is your starting point when beginning one of these books? Uh, yes, it's it's two things. It it's the character, and in each case. I start the book with an event that comes to me, um, and um, and and then it goes from there. So, uh, of course, in I don't know if you uh, read any part of the mysterious animal soup, but it starts with a murder. Okay. Um, and then uh, the next book, uh, the mysterious Bedouin girl, starts with uh, a little girl. Uh, getting sick and being okay. in the hospital, and in the hospital, um, you know they declare her dead, even though she's not. Oh wow! And basically, there's an arrangement for somebody to take the baby. And you know what I find fascinating is, you know, they say there's no new ideas. Just like the, there's no new melodies, there's no, there's no new songs that just get recycled. Yeah. And and like I actually save them sometimes. Like in in uh, on Long Island recently, uh, there was an article uh, about um, this ring of Long Island dog fighting uh, that that broke up. Oh wow. And so the professor in the wild dogs is all about dog fighting. And it's about, um, you know, species that, that are, you know, being um, uh, decimated. Uh, in the case of the African wild dogs, they're, you know, uh, they're an endangered species right now, but they're not the only ones. And so, so if, if there is a theme sort of to the books, it's because I'm directing it to tweens and teens, I want them to further look into that i want them to look into the the danger of dna you know um manipulation i want them to look into endangered species i want them to look into how terrible dog fighting is yeah. um and uh in the case of the mysterious bedouin girl uh it's a culture that very few people really know about um a perfect example is the fact that abraham who I think all cultures, all religions relate to, uh, is believed to have been a Bedouin. Mm. So that culture is like over 5,000 years old. Right. Um, and I compare it to some degree to the American Indians who lived by being everywhere. They roamed all over the place. They didn't have a, a house built on a particular place. You know, the savannas where they their home uh, and they moved around and now they can't do it anymore and the same thing happened to the Bedouins uh, mm. they were roaming they were following their flocks 
They were going wherever the grass is. Um, and, and now in most of the countries, they are relegated to towns that they don't want to live in. Uh, they're subjected to rules that go against their culture. Their culture says they can marry four women. Uh, there are laws now in most countries that they're not allowed to do that. Right. Um, you know, they, uh, they can marry girls as, as young as 12 and 13 years old. Uh, there are laws now in most countries that they're not allowed to do that. Um, just recently, New York State passed a law that even with permission, a girl can't marry before she reaches 18. Yeah. I don't know if it's if just girls and boys as well. So there's, I feel that there's something in the books that if somebody reads and they're a little bit curious, they will look further into it. So it's not only a good story, I hope, but it's also uh, something, uh, you know, that that is of teaching quality. Yeah, well, because it's, I mean, it, it's a, a, fic, a fiction story, obviously, but then at the same time, you're you're building it on a foundation of real culture, real history, yes. real people. So there's there's something more to explore there. So I'm I'm, I'm curious also. I, mean, I guess curious is maybe the right word, but you talked about how um, it, in some ways the story has some biographical elements to it, like with your your parents and, and that sort of stuff. Yes. And I think that's really fascinating because, uh, you know, you described your 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 grandchildren as, as being in their, their their teens or tweens. So based on your age, then you were, at, you know, 60 at least, right, when they were born. The, the grandchildren? Yeah, you you would have been in yes. your 60s somewhere, right? Yes. So to them, and I say this because I had this own experience with my own grandfather, who was also in his 60s when, when I was born. To To me, he was always that person, right? Like I didn't know him as a young man or anything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and it wasn't actually until, you know, he, he had passed away and, and I went to his funeral and his funeral, they had this whole slideshow and they played music from like Dean Martin, and Tony Bennett and that kind of stuff that he listened to. And it dawned on me in that moment that like, Oh, right. He was 20 once. Right. And, yeah. and he ran around with his friends like I do. And he had his own music that resonated with him and his friends. And, and, and again, it's very obvious once you have some perspective, but especially as a child, you don't have that perspective because the person is just this static age, right? Yeah, so, it's pops. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So I'm curious, do you, do you have you made them aware that there are biographical elements in, in that? Or yes. is it something you, okay. Yes, I've made them aware. And, and uh, uh, what, what's interesting is that when I finished the book, um, I felt that I wanted, um, th there were four of the granddaughters who were at that point, 11 and, and 12. And so I asked them to be my tween editors. I offered them each a hundred dollars if they're going to read the book and give me their comments. And actually I got great comments from them, uh, mm. that are actually, um, um, you know, uh, brought in, for example, they felt that I was just naming the characters, but I wasn't really writing about the characters, what they looked like, uh, you know, what, what they wore, you know, things like that. I was just, you know, going right through. Right. And so I went back to each of the characters and I, and I, and I try to put, um, the way I saw that character and, and describe him somewhat. That, that's one. Then one of the granddaughters said, you know, Pops, you're, you're using big words. I mean, I don't think people want to read, you know, a novel and have to go to the dictionary to see what the words mean. <laughs> so um, I went through and I, and I changed a lot of words. Um, or or uh, after the word, I put a little parentheses and explain what the word is oh okay you know so um yeah i got and and then i gave him i gave him uh certificates uh i don't know if you can see it you know yeah perfect I gave him certificates that they had an <laughs> editor with a hundred dollars and that's but awesome. what, what's also interesting is it didn't give him the incentive to do it on the second book <laughs> well, <laughs> none, of them had the time. <laughs> none of them had the time they're too busy right one of my granddaughters was reading three books at the same time. 
Wow. I said, well, why don't you just finish the book? And she said, I don't know. You know, I just, I just like to read, you know, a lot of stories at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's fair. I don't, I, I don't think I do that with books, but certainly with like television shows that are long oh, yeah. series, I might juggle multiple at a time. So it's not, it's not that strange, but, but you're right that it's, it's something that I've never really done with books. Yeah. I don't know. For whatever reason, I feel like that demands more attention or something. So I can only do one at a time. <laughs> right. And it's not just one of the granddaughters. I think all of them uh, are reading more than one book at a time, hmm. you know. Yeah. And, and someone said to me that with kids, uh, it's really almost like if if a bunch of kids in a school would start reading the book and talk about it, then everybody else will want to read the book. Mm. So... You know, I think sometimes you need a little bit of luck for that story, you know, to get there. Because as a new writer, and especially a writer to teens and tweens, uh, it, it doesn't seem that uh, the Times or Washington Post or even Newsday will review the book, you know. And so how are people supposed to know about it? It's it's not in, you know, it's not in uh, the the more to bookstores uh you know so um you know it's it's uh it, it's a tough thing and you know i know some people feel that they have such a strong message and they mm -hmm. go through all sorts of lengths um but in my case i'm more focused on the story and the writing not so much on the marketing So I'm curious then, I mean, what does, what does literary success look like to you? Is it, is it a certain sales number? Is it getting a certain kind of feedback or what, what is it to you that, that tells you you're successful with it? Yeah, I think, I think it was the feedback. I think it, it, it's the first time, the very first time uh, it started with uh, Stephanie reading the book and saying she loved the book and she wants me to write more. And then, and then it was reinforced. Uh, with uh, friends reading it and my uh, my granddaughters reading it and saying they liked it. Beyond that, uh, that's it. I mean, yeah, it was nice to read that uh, 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 from, from all the books, the Professor and the Wild Dogs, which is the short book, uh, made number one. But it's probably because of uh, the uh, genre it was put in, okay. you know, which is... Uh, um, science uh for for kids or something like that you know i got you the kids books are not science books so so uh i think that that's my uh that that's my uh um my my gift i feel when when people say wow you know i really like the book yeah um yep. the second one is if uh, i mean right now it's just my grandchildren but if Somebody would say, you know, I really got that that message. You know, mm. I, I, I hate dog fighting and, mm -hmm. you know, something of that nature. Right. Uh, the money uh, doesn't matter. I'm contributing all the money to my Rotary Club Foundation. So, I, yeah, I, I when I looked you up, I saw that, that you were uh, uh, on the board or, or I don't know what you'd call it, but involved with the Rotary Club. Can you explain what a Rotary Club is? Because I'm not sure, actually familiar with that sure. term. So Rotary Club is is quite old. It's over 100 years old. Uh, it was formed by a group of business people okay. who felt that they wanted to support each other and buy from each other. And they decided to meet once a week uh, each time in, in, a, in a different uh, factory or office uh, of the group. And, and that's where the, the word rotary came from. 
because they rotated the meeting place. Right, that makes sense. And uh, they started in Chicago. And at a certain point, they decided they wanted to do something more. And actually, the very first project they did was a, a public toilet uh, in Chicago. Huh. <laughs> that so, and eventually, uh, it moved from there. They they opened up another club. A club opened up in Canada. And today, uh, Rotary is in almost every country, mm. uh, and it's doing some fantastic things. I mean, I got involved in an in a uh, charity called Gift of Life, where we bring in kids from all over the world to operate on their hearts. Oh wow! Um, I don't know if you remember um, when the Reagans uh, went to uh, South Korea, they brought back a couple of children to be operated on their hearts and. And they actually came to Long Island to us. Oh wow! We arranged for the for the operations here, uh, and and uh, Rotary gives scholarships. Uh, they promote peace. Um, they, um, uh, you know, they they just do a lot. Our club specifically, I mean, even in the pandemic, we contributed over thirty five thousand wow. uh, dollars to uh, local health providers and to soup kitchen uh now we are raising money and we send a whole bunch of money to haiti where yeah. a lot of problems uh from you know their uh earthquake right um we have done projects in puerto rico we have done projects in india um i actually went on a mission to operate on kids hearts in egypt uh there were kids there that um were too far gone they couldn't if they would have gone on a plane to come to the U.S., they would have died on the plane. Wow. So we arranged for a mission with uh, surgeons and, and nurses and went to Egypt. Um, and I was sort of the facilitator. Uh, I helped raise the money for the mission. And for me, it was amazing because here I am, an Israeli, who uh, Israel was in, at a war with Egypt several times. Yeah. And I was greeted like like uh, like a friend. Uh, they opened the homes to me. Uh, there was never a talk about uh, politics or hmm. or, uh, or anything like that. So so Rotary is really uh, a uniter. Um, you know, we try uh, in the clubs not to talk about politics because we have right and left, and in sure. the middle, um, you know, we have multi religions. Uh, it's really just just in, and you make you make lifetime friends. Yeah. Well. So uh, that's that that's yeah. one of the nice. Things. I've been in it um, uh, close to fifty years. Wow, that's so cool. Well, that's that's really awesome, and I'm yeah, I'm glad I asked because I was curious what that was. I thought it had a charity type affiliation, but that's that's really awesome. And yeah, it I, I know so little, so I don't mean to. Uh, overstate my knowledge base of this, but just hearing you talk about being in Israel back in that time and um, and talking about the different wars that they've had and stuff, which again, I'm not very familiar with at all, but I recently read kind of a, a biography of sorts about Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who are both uh, psychologists from from Israel and they served in the military in the 60s and they were involved in a lot of the psychology within the military there for for a while but but so they have stories about wars with Egypt and things like that when when they were working and yeah really interesting stuff that again we just you don't learn in the american school system at all you know it's just not something that's really taught yeah it's it's to me uh it's a very very sad situation over there because you know you have you have two sides, obviously, to every story. Yeah. But um, as as time moves away from the actual incidents uh, and the actual historical events, so for example, 1948, uh, the British uh, had to leave, and uh, and the UN partitioned that area, which Britain, you know, uh, were the protectorate for into the Arab section and the Jewish section. And uh, the the Jewish um, group, who eventually would be the government, uh, accepted it. And uh, the Arabs did not. And so seven Arab countries attacked 
Yeah. Out of which, uh, you know, Israel lost some territory, won some territory, and the land of Israel became defined, and uh, and and Jordan, which which took some of the territory, and mm -hmm. and uh, Syria, which took some of the territory, um, um, and and Egypt, which took some of the territory. That all became defined, uh, and then. Uh, the Arabs were not content, and so there were several wars. The, there was the Six-Day War, which came about because Egypt uh, decided to block uh, Israeli ships from going through the Suez Canal, which would mm. have been a major problem. They also wanted to blockade any ships going into the south to Elat, and so you had the Six-Day War. So then um, Israel basically had a Sinai, then you had an attack in the Sinai, and there was another war. And today, I mean, there's no reason why you couldn't have two states and why you couldn't have peace. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, when when people make demands on one side that the other side can't accept, um, you know, um, I, I always say that um, the, the, the history is not replete with losers who want to dictate to the winners what the terms should be right peace. right and that's been the case in the middle east that the the losers want to dictate to the winners mm. what it should be uh israel has the history with gaza where they left gaza gaza basically there's no israelis there for that matter there's no jews there unless they were they were taken hostage uh and uh, what happens? There's no peace. Uh, right. Constantly, you know, sending bombs in. Uh, they closed the border only because you constantly had uh, terrorists coming in and, and blowing up kids and blowing up uh, people. And it's unfortunate because the people suffer. It's never the people. It's always the, the leaders. Uh, in the last uh, few years, maybe a dozen years, you had leadership in Israel, that was very, you know, right wing, and mm -hmm. really did not did not want to have uh, uh, a two state solution. Right, and encouraged the build up in in uh, you know in what they call the Palestinian territories. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think my 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 story doesn't really uh, the the story about the Bedouin girl does not really go a lot into the politics. I try not to get too much into the politics. But I think that there's uh, a laziness in terms of learning the history and mm -hmm. understanding why there's so many problems there and right. why it's not likely to be solved in a short term. Right. Yeah. No, that's that, that's certainly fair. So to talk to talk about your writing some more, what part of the writing process appeals to you the most? Is it is it when you're first starting and getting the ideas out? Is it finishing the book that's the most exciting? Like, what part of the writing process excites you the most? Um, well, I think that um, I have not been writing a lot in the last few months, um, uh, partly because once we came back home to New York, uh, you know, things changed my my schedule changed and i was i was finishing the book but i did start my next book and i'm like three or four chapters into it and i guess maybe the cpa in me comes out because what i like is when i end the day and i say oh great today i wrote you know uh, 400 words or today i wrote 300 words and i actually write down how many words i write every day Mm. Um, the the writing itself, the story is not. I can't say it's really enjoyable, because the way I write is it's a dictation of something that is in my head. Mm. I wish there was an instrument that I could just you know attach to my head and you know and it yeah. would all come out on paper. Right. The other thing that I also find a little bit of a drudgery, and I don't know if I, other writers feel the same way, is I could probably write the whole story in terms of the plot, where it goes and what happens, probably in one chapter. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, but you can't have a book with one chapter. So, right. you know, so you have to go from there. Um, and uh, so, no, I find, I don't find the writing enjoyable per se. Hmm. Uh, I find the process satisfying when it moves. Right. Um, is it cathartic at all? Is there an emotional release, even if it's not enjoyable? No, I don't. Okay. I don't think there's an emotional release. There's a sense of satisfaction when I go back and read a chapter, mm. and uh, I go, "Wow!" You know, like I had a couple of uh, occurrences, especially with the first book, where as I was reviewing it and reading it, uh, I actually got emotional, and I was. I was tearing about the story I was reading. I was almost reading it like I didn't write it, you know? Right. And I said, wow, that's good if it makes me cry. And yeah. I wrote it, you know? Right. Uh, so that's pretty good. So, you know, at times like that, yeah, that's like a rush. That's, right. You know? But I think the the process as a whole is is not great. It's, you know, it, it's, it's a job. Yeah, it's a job, you know, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how you work and what have you, but I would compare it to how you enjoy an interview versus afterwards when you have to edit it. You know? Yes, uh, yes. The edit is more of a chore. The interview is something you enjoy doing. Yes, you are 100 percent correct. <laughs> yeah. You're 100 percent so, correct. Yeah. So and, and that's the hardest thing is to when you go back and you are editing and you're rereading and maybe all of a sudden you're saying oh oh my god i used the the wrong name you know and you have to go through the whole book to make sure that you you didn't change the name in other places right you know? yeah that make that that makes a lot of sense so i'm i'm also curious especially with the kind of with the the genre of of writing that you're doing that's more geared towards towards you know tweens and, and teens what kinds of things do you read? I, I assume you don't read those kinds of books yourself, or do you to kind of get a sense of what other writers in that space are doing? Or, or what do you find yourself reading? Oh, that's, I'm, I'm terrible. I don't read. No? I very rarely read. Um, I mostly listen to books. Yep. And um, when I listen to books, I have certain writers um, that I like. Um uh, and uh, sometimes I listen to uh, a science book. Um, you know, my problem is, uh, as I said, my memory is not very good. So if you ask me now, well, what books did you listen to? Uh, I would have to go and, and look it up. Right. You know, I don't remember the names of books or the names of the authors. But um, but but I like, you know, I like um, suspense stories. Uh, primarily, but when it comes to my writing, um, I can't say that uh, I'm getting it from from books that I read or from 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 other areas. It comes from I don't know. Just it just comes to me. Yeah, I, just... I can't even explain the process to you. It's sort of like um, when I was still uh, a CPA, I had a whole bunch of artists. Um, some very well-known artists as clients. And uh, I had uh, a painter, uh, Archie Rand, a very well-known uh, Jewish painter. And I would ask him, you know, how, how do you get the idea to, to do this painting? And he said, I don't. He said, it comes somehow from up there, and I'm just, you know, it's just going through me. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I don't know if that's a good description, but it's almost like the idea comes from somewhere into my head and out into the paper. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily where I say, you know what? I read that and that's a good, I put this in my book, you know, right. put something like that in my book. Uh, sure. I would say, uh, no, maybe that would have been easier. <laughs> You know, if I do that. No, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've talked to, again, I've talked to a variety of authors and, and honestly, the answer is mixed. You know, I, I used to think that every author must be this really avid reader, but I've actually talked to a lot of authors that, that aren't avid readers. And I think there's pros and cons to it. I mean, the pro is that 
maybe you're exposed to more writing styles. And maybe even if you don't say, I'm going to take this specific thing, maybe it just uh, creates a more robust understanding, we could say, of, of how you could write something. But at the same time, the other the, the flip side of that is that it can also create a scenario where you don't want to be imitating someone else, even right. unconsciously, right? Yes. So, so you definitely avoid that by not by not constantly consuming. Um, so I think that's I think that's fair. And, and yeah, what you described it just sounds kind of like intuition, right? It's not a yeah. technical thing; it's more yeah. of an intuitive thing. And I mean, it is to some degree subconscious because uh, even uh, when you have uh, singers who are accused of uh you know taking uh a riff or mm -hmm. or uh, something else from another singer and they have a whole court case on it and uh right. they say yeah i mean sometimes two people get the same idea without having heard each other you know right. and uh so i mean i could i could write something there are a bunch of stories that came out uh one of them which very closely dovetails uh, the the story in the mysterious Bedouin girl, which I actually I saw that on TV on on an Israeli channel, and it was something that happened in Israel many many years ago that had to do with uh, babies being declared dead, but not really being dead and being given to other families. Oh wow. And that case is still going on today in Israel. It was a big scandal. That's wild. Um, it was it was with uh, uh, Yemenite uh, children. Now I didn't know that when I wrote most of the book, and right. I said, "Oh my God!" You know, this something like that actually happened. Not, I mean, obviously it was totally different. It was given to um, couples that came <clears throat> came to Israel after the Holocaust, mm. who didn't have children, couldn't have children. And uh, the, um, the migration that came from uh, Yemen were a lot of young girls because they got married at 12 and 13 and had babies at 12 and 13. Right. And so they came with a lot of small babies. And I guess these people felt that, you know, they're poor, they, they, you know, they can't take care of that many children, so they thought they're doing a good thing. Wow. Uh, and they gave it to loving parents. Well, that's not my story. You know, my story is is it didn't go to, to a good parent. But Right. Um, and the same thing with the story about uh, the dog ring, you know, the dog fighting ring. Right. Which just recently uh, I read about. So, you know, this, how, how do you, this stuff gets into your head somehow and you know about it. Right. And then it can come out in a story. Right. Yeah. No, that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I, the, the books that you've got, the first book is the professor and the wild dogs. And, and, and you talked about, and then the, the second one, and that's the prequel to the mysterious animal soup and Rachel's gifts. Right. So is the third book, a direct sequel to those first two? Yes. Okay. So all three of them are sequentially. Yes. And okay. so will the next one, the next one is also. Okay. Uh, sequential so i'm curious when, when you talk about dna manipulation uh you know obviously you mentioned cloning and, and kind of in the lab but i'm also curious when it comes to dogs specifically the variety of dog breeds that we have now is largely done through breeding so it's not done through cloning or something but arguably that's dna man manipulation as well do you think that that is troublesome or is it more in the lab where you think that that's problematic well um, that certainly was, uh, an example that I gave, uh, mm -hmm. in the book about, uh, dogs yeah. and, uh, and the, how the bred dogs, uh, you know, to herd sheep, the bred dogs, uh, you know, to do various things. And these dogs were bred, uh, to fight. Right. So I think it depends what the goal is right. and why you do it. So that if you are doing DNA manipulation uh, because you want to stop uh, a virus, that's a good thing. Right. If you're doing DNA manipulation uh, because you want to create a superhuman being, right. which was sort of what was being attempted here, that's not a good thing. Right. So um, I think that, um, you know, it, it, it depends what the purpose is of the science. 
Yeah. I mean, science is fantastic, but it can also be bad. I mean, a perfect example is um, the poison gases that they created mm. and how they were used. Right. So, you know, you can have a gas that's being used uh, to put you out when you have an operation. Right. And that's a good thing. Right. But now if you take that to the point where you 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 do that same gas, but you're killing people with it, mm-hmm. that's not a good thing, you know? So, uh, you know, look, look at the whole drug problem now with painkillers. I mean, painkillers are good. Yep. But then when those painkillers are not being used, you know, in a different way and are killing people, it's not good. Yeah. No, I appreciate that, that sentiment. And it's, it's the thing that I, I constantly try and and come back to, uh, in life and in the show, certainly, but just in my life is that so many things get, are so over sensationalized and they get boiled down to these binary things where it's either this or that, or it's good or bad, or it's, it's one of the other, and it's just, it's so rarely the case. It's, it's, there's always a ton of nuance, like you just described, right? It, it, the details matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, and this oversimplification of things leads in a lot of ways to people being polarized and people thinking that other people, their neighbor is their enemy. And it's like, no, <laughs> the truth is in the middle. It's not on the ends of the spectrum here, you know? Well, I'll, I'll go a step further. And, and that's something that I'm, I'm ranting about now on on the media because um, I I write almost every day on Facebook and and I have uh, about five thousand followers. Oh wow! Uh, you know, no, I shouldn't say that. I have twelve hundred followers, five thousand Facebook friends, and I don't know how many see it because Facebook decides right. who to see what. But a perfect example is, and I'm sure you have heard of the current president trying to put through a three and a half trillion dollar bill yes but it's not three and a half trillion it's 350 billion dollars a year for 10 years right well if you compare that we're spending over 700 trillion dollars um you know i'm sorry 700 billion dollars on uh uh the military budget Right. You know, spending $350 billion uh, to help uh, mothers and children and, and, and people that need health care. Right. All of a sudden, it's not so much. Right. But everything has to be bigger, more. You know, uh, you very rarely read a bill from the Senate that says, oh, we're going to spend uh, $40 million. No, it's $400 billion over 10 years. Right. Well, you know, and most people, they don't hear the 10 years. Right. And uh, uh, so you're absolutely right about, you know, sensationalizing and everything. You know, if you watch TV, it's constantly breaking news. What is the breaking <laughs> news? You know, it's, it's not breaking news. You know, I know. As a kid, I always thought if there was breaking news, it meant that, like, something world-changing has just happened. Yeah. Right? But now you're right. It's, I mean it's breaking news and it's a celebrity got married or, and it's like, what? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's definitely, um, I, I feel like the headline is the, is the, the, not the exclusive, but a big cancer of our society because the headline is written to attract attention, yes. not to be accurate. And so, that's where you know the the root of this sensationalism is trying to 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 attract eyeballs ultimately to sell ads and i don't know what our and, way out of it when you go about. when you go into the article most of the time the article says exactly the opposite <laughs> of what the headline said i know i know it's it's remarkable it's like, and this is a silly example it's not a serious topic but there's like a, a basketball player i follow the nba there's an nba player who was hurt and so he hadn't dunked a basketball for like the last 20 games that he had played but what that actually looked like was those 20 games like a few of them were right before the pandemic started then the pandemic happens and he doesn't play for nine months then he gets injured so it's like a year and a half that this 20 games take place right 
Yeah. But when that's reported, they don't say he hasn't dunked in 20 games. They say he hasn't dunked in a year and a half. Right. Which sounds right. way more dramatic when in truth, 20 games is a quarter of an NBA season. It's a, it's a yeah. month or two, you know? So, yeah. and again, yeah. it's basketball. It's silly, but it's the same. Okay, idea, how, about, how about in basketball, right? You have a team in double overtime, the win by one point. And what is the headline? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Such and such beat such and such, you know? Right. Or, or the same thing in tennis. Tennis is my game. I love to play tennis. I still yeah. play tennis, thank God. And, you know, you'll you'll have uh, uh, four tie-break sets. Right. And and they make it sound like one guy trounced the other guy. No, it right. was very close. It was a point difference, you know? It's, it's, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I think sports is maybe the most sensational uh, subject that gets covered. I don't know. Politics is, is catching up if it hasn't surpassed it now, but... It's pretty wild the way that, that that's all reported. Either that's, way. That, that, that's the, that, funny you say that because that's the next book. The next book is sports. Oh, nice. Yeah, it, it takes place at the U.S. Open. Of course, it has to do with tennis. Oh, cool. It's still one of the one of the kids that is involved and the whole family is involved. And the gist of that book is going to be about sports parents. Yeah. That's good. You know, that's and uh, and that could go off the rails. <laughs> bullies and sports parents. Yeah, which sometimes can be the same person. They can be yeah, both a bully and right. a, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to give too much away. Sure, sure. <laughs> I just mean generally. Um, well, that's awesome. Well, Ronnie, I, I can't thank you enough for for stopping by again. There's there's three different books. I'll name them again. We've got the Professor and the Wild Dogs, the Mysterious Animal Soup, and Rachel's Gifts, and then the third book is the Mystery of the Bedouin Girl and Rachel's Gifts. All of these books are available on Amazon, and I'll have a link in my show notes so people can click directly on it and get to the link to, to purchase the books themselves. Great. Um, and if they actually, if they go to Amazon Books and they type in my name, R O N Y, mm -hmm. because I spell it unusually, yeah. all my books pop up. Nice. Okay. Well, perfect. <laughs> well, yeah. I'll, I'll throw that tidbit in there as well. Great. Um, but Ronnie, again, I, I really can't thank you enough for your time. Is there anywhere else that I should direct people to to find you? I know you said you have a Facebook. Would you like me to provide that link in the show? Sure, notes you can. You can let them know. But but uh, I I I don't really friend new people because you know Facebook allows you five thousand, and I'm not I'm not that interested to open up another uh, account. Wow, know? I didn't and, know there was an upper limit. <laughs> yeah, five thousand. And and frankly, um, when when I'm on Facebook. Uh, I explain to people that I'm looking for like-minded people mm. to share uh, and vent. I'm not looking to argue or tell stories. And, right. uh, and, and I'll tell you one last, last tidbit about Facebook. When I write something political, which I do all the time, yeah, I get, you know, uh, six, I get 10 likes. I don't know how many people see it, but I only get six or 10 or 12 people that actually move to put a thumbs up or make a comment. Right. I put um, something personal, like I put today on Facebook that uh, Amazon had me at number 10 on on uh, uh, the professor book. And I think like an hour later, there were like 30 people, you know, who made comments. So right. people on Facebook really rather see the personal stuff. Yeah. I had a baby, uh, you know, I had a grandchild, uh, I have a birthday, right? Uh, and all this other stuff. Yeah, no, that's that that's absolutely fair. Yeah, well, I really enjoy talking to you. Good. Well, awesome. Well, yeah, I can't thank you enough for your time. Uh, thank you so much for stopping by this evening. A anytime. Sugar in my coffee It's not a choice that I can take back The anticipation of seeing you Is bursting out my back My hands are trembling like a leaf My feet are shaking on the ground Happiness you must give me Cause I'm tired and mad and I don't want you to take 
my decision to rise or to break. I don't roll over. I don't want to roll over for you anymore. I don't want to roll over. And I don't want to roll over for you anymore. That's all for the show today. Thank you so much to Ronnie for stopping by and sharing his walk of life. Links to Ronnie's books are located in the show notes. I also want to thank Misha Zarens for the music in today's show, and last but not least, thank you listener for listening. I also invite you to check out my other shows, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game podcast where we explore the idea of why gaming matters, or my other show, The Crowfall Podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. Both of these are available on any podcast app. As always, thanks again for the listen, have a great week, and stay up.